0: Now, how long have you had these pains, Mr. Barber? No, that's Babar. Two Bs? One B. B-A-B-A-R. That's two. Yeah, but not right next to each other. I thought that's what you meant. Arnold Babar. Isn't there a children's book about an elephant named Babar? I don't know. I don't have any. No children? No elephant books.
1: Welcome to Between the Lions, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. Joining me today to help make sense of a wild month in college sports that is about to get a bit wilder is Michael McCann, writer and legal analyst for Sportico and professor and director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire, longtime long-time friend and first-time podcast guest for me. We talk about name, image, and likeness the future of college sports, whether we can expect the college football and basketball video games to return, and the grade I gave him on his paper in law school, and more. Here we go. We got to jump right now. We have a lot to talk about. Big news today, a lot of uncertainty. I've been waiting for this chance to talk to you to ask this question. I don't think a lot of people are talking about it, but we actually had an offline chat about this. John Hamm cast as Fletch in the reboot of Fletch. What do you make of this?
0: Well, one, I'm just thrilled there's a reboot, right? Because both of us have seen that movie probably over 50
1: times, right? Yes. So yes.
0: Y- y- literally, we know the lines. We text each other
1: the lines from the movie. So, I'm not sure we text anything other than lines to that movie.
0: <laughs> it's pretty much the, the substance of our communications is
1: yeah. largely
0: around the movie Fletch. So <laughs> this is going to be... A great opportunity for us, a to get new material. Yeah. And uh, John Hamm is a skilled actor, right? It's tough to take over Chevy Chase, but I think if anyone can do it, I'm I'm pretty excited to see what he's going to do and how much they change the movie, right? Like, what are the plot lines?
1: It's yeah. it's a big deal. What yeah. Do how think? do they modernize it? He's a skilled actor, but you know, Chris Paul is a skilled point guard, but is he going to take over for Shaq? I don't know. I don't know if John Hamm is the right is the right guy. We'll see he he's been great in everything but i i thought maybe ryan reynolds or even a will farrell could reinvent the the role but that's why i'm a law professor and not a casting director so well. Well,
0: will farrell would have been interesting right because yeah, yeah. he would certainly land the humor part and john yeah. ham we don't know how he's going to do with that but hey we'll find out
1: we'll find out all right so that's why i brought you on and now that we've covered that let's switch gears we've known each other for a long time and i don't think a lot of people know how we met. So I'm going to let you tell the the origin story of how we met, and then I'll correct you on the details you get wrong. And I'll do that throughout the podcast. I'll ask you questions, and then I'll correct you when I think. Why don't you tell the audience the story of how we met?
0: Okay, I'll give this narration. So like like any oral history, <laughs> but the facts you'll have to check. But <laughs> what, what I think is accurate is I was a law student at the University of Virginia back in 2000. In one, two, I graduated in 2002, so it was that school year, and I signed up for a course called sports law. And part of the appeal, a big part of the appeal, is that one of the instructors was named Donald Dell. And Donald Dell, as I'm sure your listeners know, is a historic figure in sports law, sports industry more generally. And he was an agent to Arthur Ashe and involved with a number of NBA players and various contracts and tennis stars. So when I saw that he was teaching class, I said, yeah, I'm going to take that. So I took the course and he was there and he was great. And he had a very young attorney who I, maybe he came straight from high school, <laughs> law school, I think, who was heavily involved with some of the lectures in terms of providing some of the sort of key legal topics, basically. And that very young, very young man was named Gabe Feldman, who was at Williams and Connolly in, in Washington, D.C. And he and uh, Donald Dell led a tremendous course. That's how I met you. You were, you were a teacher. You were a
1: professor at like 19, <laughs> exactly. law professor at 19. I don't know how you did it. Doogie Hazard. So you were, what, 23 or 24? And I was probably 26 or 27? Yeah.
0: That's, let's let's yeah. lie and make ourselves younger. Let's, right. Well, you
1: the one you said that the year, you didn't have to do that. You could no, have said it was 2011. Stupid. That was stupid. Yeah, I, I, I think
0: 2011, I got the numbers
1: mixed up. I'll go back and edit that. Yeah. It was 2018, you had just graduated. A lot has happened since those 20 years. And it seems like every year or two... You and I and our friend Warren and and others in the sports law community are saying, this is the biggest year we've had in sports law history. It's going to be hard to top this. This might be that year, though. I I just can't imagine a bigger year, given everything that's happening, just in college sports alone. That's not even addressing stuff that is happening in the rest of the country, the rest of the sports world. The demise of the Super League and international soccer sort of feels like it happened 20 years ago. But that might have been the biggest sports story of the decade, if not for what's happening with the NCAA. So let's, I want to talk about Alston. I want to talk about name, image, and likeness, and then kind of what's happening next with lawsuits and, and maybe Congress. Let's start with Alston. And you and I have talked about this now a thousand hours over the last four or five days. Um, but just for sort of a recap of the recaps. What we know about Alston and what we don't know, what what do you think are the the key takeaways for people who said, you know what, I've heard everybody talk about this for a week straight. What are the bullets of what we actually know the Supreme Court said and what we don't know that they said?
0: So I, I think one big bullet is that the NCAA's longstanding argument that it is owed deference under antitrust law hit a major roadblock in the Alston opinion because the court made clear that The Board of Regents case, which we know has constantly invoked by the NCAA, the court said this isn't about college athletes. That was a case about broadcasting rights. So maybe it applies there, but not with athletes. So that that I think is a big thing because it sets the table for other litigation where the NCAA can no longer claim deference. I think another big takeaway is that is what the case was about and what it isn't about. We know that it was about education-related benefits for athletes, which is not what people think about when they think of college athletes being paid. I think this isn't the case that leads to college athletes being paid for their labor or because they're good at sports or anything like that. It's a case about how schools have limited, through NCAA rules, what they can offer for education-related benefits. What, What that phrase means, I think will be fascinating to see. We know that the court said that the NCAA cannot cap the awards for academic-related benefits, which are, which are about $6,000. At least that amount for athletic-related benefits it can't be lower than that for academics. So that's meaningful. We have a sort of benchmark of $6,000.
1: How do you think that piece of it plays out? Because there hasn't been that much discussion do you think that's a school saying, if you get a 2.5 GPA, we give you 59.80? We give you up to the, the limit? Or how do you think schools might do that?
0: Yeah, I imagine for for the sake of competition that schools will not have the GPA level too high or whatever is the benchmark too high. I, I also imagine there'll be some pushback from others on, on campus who might say, hey, why is it that we're giving the athletes $6,000 for getting a 2.5? when the student with a 3-3 in pre-med is not getting anything maybe, right? So there's, there are going to be claims of inequity, I'm guessing, as that plays out, and maybe valid claims. Maybe, maybe that it will sort of shed light on how we value students at schools.
1: And you and I know just the, the complaints, and often legitimate from faculty on campus, that They are teaching in buildings that are decrepit, and their phone lines don't work, and there are leaks in the building, and then there are these brand new athletic facilities. And then you add on top of that, the million-dollar coaching salaries, and all of a sudden, each college athlete is getting $6,000 for passing their course or for writing their name on the top of the exam, whatever we consider academic achievement. That seems like that might boil up even more on college campuses. So there's that cash. And then you've talked about the non-cash related. The the court talks about the no Lamborghini rule, that this doesn't allow you to just give an athlete a Lamborghini to say, well, we're going to give you a driver's ed course and you need a Lamborghini to pass the course. But you pointed out there's so much sort of unknown there. And before we get into NIL, that's going to look like that there may be some room for competition among schools for these in-kind education benefits. So you can talk about that a little bit what, what you see as as again there, there's just some uncertainty because the injunction was just affirmed by the Supreme Court last week and there's a lot to still be played out but how you see maybe this being either manipulated or at least the conversations are going to have okay.
0: Yeah, I, I do think there's a risk of it being manipulated or maybe we say this is the way it should be. I mean, I, I guess it just depends on what perspective we have. I, I could see some schools that are really vying for the top recruits to be creative about what counts as education related. And I I wrote about what happens if a PlayStation 5 and a big screen TV are part of the study of eSports. Is that education related? How about a trip to Mount Rushmore? I mean, mean, that's history related. I'm sure far more creative people than you or me will put their minds together to come up with ways of having things fall under the umbrella of education related that professors and other academics are going to scoff at and i don't know how quickly that happens but i think we know that schools especially those that are really focused on getting the best athletes are going to be pushed in that direction and it will be up to schools there could be a lot of friction as you reference gave that's already been there for a long time it might accelerate if, in fact, schools view education-related benefits as an opportunity to to really come up with light-level stuff. And we know there have been courses on golf, right? I mean, all sort of, there's like a history of things that are very uh, suspicious as academics that have been used. And I'm sure that's going to happen here as well.
1: I, I was an under, underwater basket weaving major, <laughs> as you know. But two things on that. One is the, the, the large-screen TVs for the esports class. One would think because they're not going to be able to have these courses just for athletes that if you say that the the large screen TV is a legitimate educational related benefit that all the students in the class would have to get it so you'd have a pretty pretty popular class if it's not just the athletes getting it. But the other thing is you might recall you said that these are people much more creative than we are that you know I, I tried to convince Donald Dell to have a PlayStation tournament as one of our classes back in 1982, whenever it was that we were having that course. So they're not that much more creative <laughs> than, than we are. But one more question on Austin, then we'll talk to we'll talk about NIL. Kavanaugh's concurrence. One of the most scathing anti-NCAA opinions we've seen at any level, certainly at the Supreme Court. What do you think is more significant? The fact that Kavanaugh wrote it, or that the eight other justices did not sign on
0: Yeah, I gravitate towards the latter. Think about this case if it had been different, if Jeffrey Kessler had pushed for the wider review, right? If it had been about all benefits, academic, athletic, and that's what the Supreme Court was reviewing. I don't know if there are five votes there. We know Chief Justice Roberts seemed reticent. He talked about the game of Jenga. We know that Justice Breyer was very cautious in his wording. He was worried about poking holes at at the NCAA system, that it could all come crumbling down, that it's not the place of courts. I think Justice Sotomayor hinted at some reticence as well. That's three. Justice Thomas had a question along those lines. Four, you know, this is a different case. And the fact that the other justices didn't sign on to Justice Kavanaugh, maybe part of it is because his language was so forceful that they didn't want to be a party to that and that they maybe agree with him on the merits. But no one else signed it. And we know that if there is an athletics related case that goes to the Supreme Court, yeah, Kavanaugh is clearly a vote against the NCAA. But the other eight, I don't know. I, I, I didn't get a sense from that. The oral argument that we know for sure, maybe Justice Gorsuch is with Kavanaugh maybe Justice Alito, we're sort of
1: extrapolating there. What, what do you think? I, I agree with you. I, I think it is meaningful. They're both really meaningful. I mean, the fact that one of the most conservative justices on the court ruled in favor of labor or, or wrote in favor of labor was meaningful. But, but I agree. And I just don't know if the other justices didn't sign on, as you said, because of the language used or if nobody was going to sign on. So Kavanaugh just said, well, I'm going to write it exactly how I want to write it. I don't have to worry about getting anyone else to join. I'm not sure. I think certainly the roadmap is there to undo all the NCAA rules. But it is fascinating, as you brought up, that, that Kessler and the plaintiffs decided not to file a petition for cert. And if they had, if that would have affected the outcome or would it have been, they reject the broader claims, but then they rule the same on the narrower claims. And I think if they do that, although it's the same sort of, immediate outcome, athletes' rights advocates are not celebrating the outcome because it would have given the Supreme Court a chance to affirm the bigger issues because as as much of a win as this was, uh, nobody is truly celebrating this as the end goal, right? That they just wanted to get athletes more education-related benefits. This may be a means to that ultimate end, but if it had stopped here, I think the NCAA would have been thrilled and I think the plaintiffs would have been unhappy.
0: Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, nobody is until the last few years, who we was talking about education-related benefits. Right. Even that phrase was not used years ago. So, right. yeah, I agree with you. If it had been this, the Supreme Court essentially endorsing the NCAA's ability to explicitly endorse the NCAA's ability to cap athletic-related benefits, they would view that as a win, even with the academic-related benefits falling not under that. Uh, it right. would have been a totally different perception of the case and – the coverage would have been different. And I'm sure Mark Emmert would be smiling.
1: That was certainly a risk where, although they didn't decide to write it that way, of course, it could have written it like the Ninth Circuit wrote it in Alston and O'Bannon, that the line is, if it's education related, the NCAA can't restrict it. If it's not education related, the NCAA can restrict it. And these are education related, so they can't restrict it. They didn't need to go that far. And they they chose not to go that far, but but it was interesting how narrow the opinion was, and even though the plaintiffs didn't file the petition for cert, that was still a, a possible outcome that they would lose the bigger war. But that's obviously still to be decided, and so you know I think we both agree, and we've been on other podcasts talking about this that. It's a big win, but we don't know how big it is until the next case is decided, maybe by a district court or or maybe eventually back in the Supreme Court. Obviously, one of the other big issues going on right now is name engine like this and recording this on Tuesday. And and as of Tuesday, around 5 Eastern, I think it's 24 states have now passed laws, including some executive orders. 14-ish will take effect July 1. There's so much to talk about here. And I just want to hear your perspective on a lot of things. Let's start with, again, what we do know and what we don't know about the state laws, and then also how they interact with the NCAA legislation that may or may not get passed. That's a big
0: issue, is whether the NCAA's interim NIL policy becomes a reality. I think if it becomes a reality, then we're going to see July 1, a ton of announcements across the country with endorsement deals. I don't think most athletes are going to get into, I'm not equating the two things, but it would be a pretty profound change. It would be essentially NIL, the NIL debate's over, you might say, at that point. I, I don't think you can unwind that. So there's that. If that doesn't happen, and we see however many states it is on July 1, whether it's 14, whether it's some other number pending executive orders, that to me would be a fascinating result because we would then see some states, colleges, in some states have a decisive advantage. How long that advantage lasts, that I think is also important because if it turns out that if, if there's a state where a school's saying, hey, what, what the heck, the, these other arrivals are able to tell their recruits, come here, we can't do that, I'm sure there'd be a lot of pressure on governor's offices to just sign an executive order that more or less captures what we've seen in other state laws on NIL. But there are also differences in the state laws. There's market value analysis in Florida, for instance. We don't know how that the mechanics of that, but we know it's in the state law. Is that now a hindrance for Florida school? Whereas in other states, it's a much more open arrangement. We also know that in some states, there are restrictions on what industries one can partner with whether it's gambling or tobacco, alcohol, wow. whatever they may be, adult entertainment, that will also potentially hurt some schools that would prefer to be in a more free market, open place. And there's also restrictions on, before you can sign an endorsement deal, being educated properly, having to go to workshops. And I don't mean it like in a negative way, but some, some will say, I don't want to go to workshop, I just want to sign a deal. Texas law has a requirement of education So it's interesting that the states that rushed, and I understand why, they rushed to get legislation passed, they may unintentionally be disadvantaged if the NCAA's more free NIL policy becomes the rule in other states.
1: And that's sort of the big irony here is that those states get a lot of credit for creating this July 1 deadline. Really, the NCAA is responding to, because Florida first and then a number of other states their laws will take effect. And the NCAA said, we have to have something to deal with the athletes in the States that don't have laws. I don't think anybody expected up until a week ago that the NCAA's answer would be, well, we'll just let the schools come up with whatever policy they want. And and I think there's very little question that that's been driven at least in part by Alston and this fear of further antitrust litigation. But it, it, it does set up this odd situation where you're going to have athletes in certain states that are subject to their state law, others in other states that are not, don't have any state laws, so they are just subject to the NCAA bylaws. And we don't know what the NCAA bylaws are going to be because they haven't finalized them yet. And whatever this final sounds like it's just going to be temporary or, or interim. And so how do you as a athletic director or compliance office come together with a policy that's just sort of an impossible burden on these schools. But do you see, you've talked about this a little bit, do you think there is another lawsuit brewing here, either by the the NCAA or potentially by some athletes in states that have more restrictive rules or or maybe some combination of the two? Yeah,
0: I thought the NCAA... Until the Alston ruling, I think that this sort of, like like you just said, I think that was a game changer in their approach. I think the NCAA, certainly Mark Emmert referred to high-level discussions about bringing litigation. He didn't say it, I'm summarizing what he said, uh, but he alluded to the possibility of seeking restraining orders in the states where NIL laws were going into effect, that they were going to interfere with interstate commerce, that they're going to interfere with the contractual relationship between the NCAA and member schools. I actually think there was a fairly plausible case to be had, but that I mean, unless there's a rapid change, I can't see them now doing that. I think that they missed the window to do that, and maybe that was wise to not pursue that. It would have been hard to sort of governors over state laws so that college athletes can't get NIL. It just, I think the optics of that in, in this country would have been challenging. In terms of athletes in states where there are going to be more restrictions— I could see litigation, but I'm of the view. I think a lot of athletic directors are going to just say, "Look, do what you got to do." I, d- I don't know if there's going to be a rigid enforcement. I feel like it's going to be a pretty open marketplace, yep. and in part because everything's happening so quickly. And now there's a perception that in states without laws, it's going to be op- an open market, more or less. Even if that proves not to be true, I think it's going to be interpreted as that. And there may be some that say, "Yeah, the NCAA came up with these guidelines. We've got a lot to do." and Going to enforce these, I think it's going to be it could be disruptive, it could be messy, but that's not necessarily bad for the athlete. The athlete might benefit from that.
1: And then many would argue, and that it's already disruptive and messy, it's just that the athletes aren't getting benefit from it. This will, or or, or their benefit is capped, and this will provide them with more benefit. I think we all agree that athletes do get a lot of benefits, it's just should the schools be allowed to continue to cap them. It, it seems like, in playing this out, that because of Alston, in part, the N.C.A.A. said we're concerned about agreeing to rules that are overly restrictive because we're afraid we might get sued again. So we're going to have very unrestricted rules, depending on what happens Wednesday. That might invite its own litigation, and I'm not sure how the N.C.A.A. comes back from that, given that their argument for the last several decades has been we need uniformity, we need a level playing field. We can't exist if athletes are operating under different rules, depending on what state they're in. And now they're just saying, okay, go operate in your state and whatever rules your state has, those will be the rules. And it seems as if two things might happen. One is they won't survive because as they've been arguing for years, they can't survive with a lack of uniformity. Or two, they do survive. And if they do survive, they've proven they can survive without a lack of uniformity and without those restrictive rules, which if you're Jeff Kessler, the plaintiff's attorneys, you say every one of these agreements you've had in the past is obviously more restrictive than necessary.
0: Look at the house case, right? Exactly. That's, that's exactly what they're gonna they're gonna say. Why if it works fine, why didn't you allow it before?
1: Right. And, and for those who don't know what the House case is, which is probably most people, do you want to give a quick summary of the House Oliver cases and, and what's gone on there so far? Yeah,
0: sure. So there are three college athletes who have brought two lawsuits against the NCAA out in the Northern District of California before Judge Wilkin, the same judge, district court judge in Obanon and Alston. The basic argument is that member schools and the Power Five conferences in the NCAA have all conspired legally under antitrust law to deny NIL, which they define more broadly than I, I think we're used to. They include broadcasting rights in that, which is interesting. So they argue that all of this time where, where the college athletes weren't able to get NIL, it's a result of an unlawful conspiracy. So if now the NCAA says, oh, yeah, you're right, we can have amateurism and NIL and states can do what they want, that just seems like opening the door for lawyers to say, in that case, to say you just admitted right. your rules were not necessary. Right. And they're one of their proposed alternatives for a less restrictive arrangement is that there are no rules, that those rules didn't exist, wouldn't have existed, and still be compatible with amateurism. So I feel like they've sort of walked themselves into uh, a tough spot. Now maybe they'll talk around it, maybe they'll say, Well, the circumstances have changed that you're comparing apples and I mean, yeah, there, there are ways around that, but Right. Does, does it seem like a good strategy for, for litigation purposes? I, I don't know. What, what do you think?
1: No, I agree. And it, it may be, as you said, they can argue that circumstances have changed, that they have realized they needed to loosen the restrictions on name, and and likeness. They've been planning to do that all along, and they wanted uniformity, but they couldn't get it because these states kept coming in, and this was a, a temporary. It's, you know, they've emphasized that this is interim. This depends on the NCAA having a finalized policy or Congress stepping in. So they may say, look, this was out of desperation. We don't think this is a good way to operate. And if, if it's only over three or four or five months, they can say, yeah, we survived for three or four or five months, but we wouldn't have been able to survive in the long term. So they get to maintain all those argue, uh, the basic uh, uniformity defense, but but we'll see. And, and we'll see you know, that it may be part of a tactic to go to Congress to say, look, we need your help. Without your help, this is what we're going to have. We're going to have 40 states that have 40 different rules, and it's going to be a nightmare. Uh, it's going to be a nightmare for people to understand what the rules are, wh- what what state law applies, and unless Congress steps in to help, it's just going to keep getting worse.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I think it's going to be interesting where, where I imagine, I'm just speculating, that some states are going to say, I don't want Congress involved. We like right. the way we're doing it, right? We like a free market approach. It right. could be really hard to unwind that. I mean, look yeah. at sports betting. It varies across yeah. the country. I mean, it's a different thing because there's no NCAA. I'm not I'm not they're they're different on a lot of a lot of levels, but it would be really hard to take away state autonomy on sports betting. And I feel like the more NIL becomes something that schools in a state get used to, they're not gonna want Congress to come in. And and it's clear there wasn't enough support before this started. So would there be added political support? Plus, we know that the NIL debate has been linked to other debates, revenue sharing, health care. It's a tough mix of, of issues. I don't know. My, my instinct is that it's just it's going to gravitate towards a free market. But
1: Yeah. And this is one of the points where I think you, I, would, I don't want to say disagree, but we, we may not completely we fight agree. Over, fight we, over.
0: We fight yeah, over. Yeah,
1: we, we fought over. It. That's right. We've sent, those are our non-fletched texts is where we yell at each other for yep. disagreeing about congressional involvement. One thing that's struck me with these states, as all the laws have gotten passed, or most of them have gotten passed in the last few weeks or months, most of the legislators are saying, we're doing this so we don't get passed by our neighbors. We're we're just doing this to keep up. They're not saying so much. uh, We're doing this because we think this is right for our athletes. And and we've chosen this specific law and this specific language because we think this best protects our athletes. It's almost like they're saying, we just want to be on the level playing field with every other state. They want uniformity. They don't wanna be at a recruiting disadvantage. And if they had led with it, Arkansas says, we think this is the protection that is necessary for our citizens and the student athletes at Arkansas schools, then I could see the state saying, we don't wanna give that up. But it feels like they're just saying, we just wanna be able to compete with all the schools around us in other states. But as you said, Congress couldn't get the NIL, the narrow NIL done. Now that it's a broader conversation, that may make it even more difficult. And they may say, look, you guys are doing fine. You're able to control this through state law. We don't need Congress to step in. We'll see. Last couple of minutes, just on the NCAA interim legislation on NIL, there's a lot we don't know. But assuming it is permissive and assuming that the basic rules are it can't be pay for play and it can't be a recruiting inducement. And the schools maybe can't be involved. Maybe they can be involved. That may get sorted out on the vote. But it seems like at this point, there's nothing that will stop the video game, the EA Sports game from returning because the the new policy does not have a restriction on use of marks and logos. So it doesn't seem to be any obstacle other than someone to represent the players in that deal. Do you you see it the same way? Do you you think this is good news for the video game fans?
0: Yeah, I do. I think... There's no restriction, as you said, and even if there isn't a current entity or vehicle that could provide those, right, I'm sure one could be created, right? Right? And, and clearly, there's a market for it. So, yeah, I, I think based on what we know as of right now, it seems very likely that those that want college sports video games are going to be very happy. Uh, I imagine that they'll the publishers, EA, probably will, will rush and get a game out. Right? Maybe they've already been working on. It. We know they made an announcement that they intended to create a game. I think by 2023 was the announcement. But maybe they can move that up. There, there's clearly a market. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a game far sooner than that. Maybe by the holiday season. I think the tricky thing will be what is the vehicle to get the players who are in the game paid. Maybe you know, is it a signing a form? What is sort of the logistics of that? Right. But these are things they'll figure out, right? right. They're not like. That hard, so, yeah, I, I think we'll be seeing games a lot sooner than twenty
1: twenty three. Yeah, it's it's right. I agree. It's more of a logistical challenge than a legal challenge. And EA it turned out EA was pretty prescient when they announced the return of the game. It was last year, people said, "Wait a minute, can the athletes be in it?" And it looks like they they knew all along. Maybe they had a mole in the Supreme Court.
0: <laughs> Maybe they did. And I and I think it always showed You know, Ed O'Bannon sued EA and the NCAA. And it was always interesting that they, the two of them were together because their interests are so divergent, right? EA just makes video games. What they, they don't care about amateurism. Right. Right? right? They would love to just make a game and probably not deal with litigation and and pay the players some, maybe, maybe a modest amount. I think the players got an average of about $1,500 that right. appeared in the games. and it's, right. EA is not going to go broke. I'm sure that their market research suggests that publishing a game with real players' likenesses and names in it would be a win for all, but
1: I guess we'll find yeah. out. And I, I think this is an opportunity for them to do like the old track and field arcade game with the track ball <laughs> and the buttons you yes. pound in to make your guy go faster or your, your person go faster. They should do EA all sports. It's not just yes. football or basketball. You get to play track. You get to play volleyball with the men's team, with the women's team. That EA, yeah, you can take that. You can take that idea from me. Just, just they, they don't even have to pay you. Well, maybe a little bit, but just you know, we can, there should
0: be a turbo uh, button, you know. Something, yes. sort of, you know. Yes, that's my contribution. There, if there's a turbo <laughs> button, I want to be paid something for that.
1: Or I'll just you can use my likeness in the game, but it has to be like you know, a separate code. You can unlock me and to play yeah. on the Duke Classic team. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, two other quick questions. On the, you mentioned in the House case, and and I think the House case is sort of the case that people wish the Supreme Court had decided is do athletes have the right to be paid for name and likeness, and do they have a right to be paid for their TV rights? And the NCAA has argued that there is no legal right to be paid for broadcast broadcasted television that's essentially preempted by copyright. And Judge Wilkins said, I, 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 even if that's true, it doesn't mean they can't be paid for, it. because obviously... the professional athletes, theirs is at least under case law preempted by copyright, yet they're paid for because right. as part of the collective bargaining agreement. So the NIL laws that are being passed, I don't know that any of them mention television. And the, I haven't seen the NCAA legislation mention television. I'm just wondering, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this, do you think we're going to see athletes or, or the NCPA or somebody say, look, you have to start paying the athletes if you want them to be in TV deals.
0: Yeah, there's a logical argument, right? The pro players, mm-hmm. like you just said, Gabe are paid for being ir- irrespective of copper, irrespective of the First Amendment argument that right, this is the right. reason, right? Th- th- those reasons don't matter, it seems, because the players are still paid at the pro level. W- what is the distinction at the college sports level? So it wouldn't surprise me to see some group make that argument. Now, whether they can... Get a group of players together. I mean, there, there's sort of the collective action issue that I think right. I'm a little bit less sure about. Right. Uh, right. I mean, how do you would players sort of not appear at games because they're not being paid for their broadcasting rights? I mean, that maybe, but we haven't seen anything like that happen, at least at a, at a broad scale. So I could see the argument being raised. I'm a little bit less convinced that it will lead to maybe what's a necessary action
1: to make it happen. I just wonder if one of the lawyers will file an injunction and say, yeah. You can't show these games unless you pay the athletes, unless you get consent from them. Now they argue they have consented through their, the document they signed, but all right, we have 30 seconds left. Give me, give me your parting thoughts. I want to have a perfect 30 second question for you, but I don't have one. So I'm going to leave it to you. Well, give me, I give me your best stuff now. 20 my seconds.
0: best stuff, I don't know <laughs> what my best stuff is. I don't think I have best stuff, but I can say this, that it's going to be a lot of fun for us, for others who teach sports law, for students who take sports law, this is an amazing time to be studying this area of law because it's, so much is happening so quickly. I mean, what other area of law has this kind of monumental change happen in, over a period of two weeks, really? Right. If, you, if you couple Austin with the NIL laws and now the NCAA's NIL policy, what a time to be studying this area of law. And for, and for our students, so many great paper topics. I can't wait to see what's written about this. That's my parting shot. That's perfect,
1: perfect parting shot, and it's a perfect way to close because I remember reading the paper you wrote for my class and grading it on uh, on an airplane. So I don't, I don't remember what the actual it. grade was. But. You liked it. You seemed to like it. So uh, it was okay. I, I didn't have final <laughs> say. Donald Donald gets it the <laughs> Big check mark. Yeah. Fine. Good. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Anytime. Be well. Uh, Good luck with all your Sportico stuff and and, and everything else you're doing. I know you're you're a very busy man, so thank you for taking the time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Let's talk soon. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to my loyal sponsor, RIPVEST, often imitated. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to my loyal sponsor, RIPVEST, often imitated, but never replicated, RIPVEST. See you all next time. Between the lines, what the hell you need ball bearings for? Ah, oh, come on, guys. It's so simple. Maybe you need a refresher course. It's all ball bearings
0: nowadays.